This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Set me free of the chains holding me. Is anybody out there hearing me? Set me free. Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, Proclaim liberty to captives and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung. Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. Glad to have you along. And uh, before we get started, one announcement. June 9th to 12th of this year, we have our couples retreat. That will be held in Beulah, Colorado. Beulah is a beautiful mountain retreat community in the 6,000-foot elevation location in the mountains in Colorado. And and uh, it's a couple's retreat with a maximum space of six slots for six couples. Half of them are now taken. So if you want more information on that, go to the website at blazinggrace.org. And... As you might have heard as you've been listening to the show over time, what we try to do here is get into the hard issues that people are struggling with, issues like physical abuse, sexual abuse, the mental and chemical struggles a lot of people are going through today with depression and anxiety, and and then the confusion that could come in with when prescription medications are prescribed that make the situation worse instead of better, and we talk about spiritual warfare and then how the enemy comes in. He does not play fair. He plays to steal, kill, and destroy. So when people are going through these things, he does everything he can to destroy their life. And then you add that with the sexual, the battle of sexual sin and how it can traumatize a marriage. There's, there's a lot going on there. So in these next two episodes, you'll be blessed to hear my next, my guest's story. Shannon is a wife and a mother of two. She's been married 27 years, and she lives in Minnesota. And Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just get started, and I'll invite you to share your story, and let's go. Yeah. I, um, I'm the oldest of three children, and my mom and dad... Um, had me as sort of a surprise in the wedding photos, so they <laughs> they got married quick. And um, growing up was um, kind of a mixed bag of really amazing times and really dark and um, scary times, too. My dad was an alcoholic, and he would drink too much, which would result in a lot of arguments. So growing up was kind of tumultuous. And being the oldest of three, I took it upon myself to kind of take care of my brother and sister. That was, I deemed it my job to protect them at all costs. So a lot of times I would find myself probably putting myself in situations that caused myself more harm than good, just simply to get in the way of my brother and sister. But, um, 
I think looking back, you know, especially as, you know, giving a little sneak peek into the second part, you know, just was starting with my husband's addiction himself. As a child, I, I look back and I, I say to myself, I will never, ever marry an addict. You make these little mental notes to yourself as you're going through your childhood saying, I'm definitely going to do this or I'm definitely not going to do this. And I think the hardest thing for me growing up was this feeling of not being wanted. And I was always in the way. I was never good enough. I, my, the love that we, I experienced was very conditional. And I think that is probably one of the most damaging things to a child is feeling this love could be stripped away for any number of reasons, which as a child, you definitely take that on as your fault. And I remember having this sense, this just this looming sense that I wasn't wanted, which caused me to start snooping around. I think I was seven years old and my mom things because I just didn't feel like I saw the truth. And I found a journal and the journal was basically her saying that she couldn't love me and didn't love me. And of course, at the time as a child, that was very devastating. Looking back now as an adult woman, I see that she probably was struggling very much with postpartum depression, her own abuse as a child. I mean, abuse just usually doesn't come out of the blue. It usually starts somewhere. And there had been abuse on both my mom and dad's side. And uh, the hard thing for me, though, was I never could get her love or, or approval ever. And I have these very poignant moments growing up where I would try to present myself in such a way to her to be tolerable enough for the moment and the one thing that I desired more than anything was to be able to sleep with her at night when my dad would go out traveling he was a traveling salesman so he was gone for many days during the week and I remember her taking my brother and sister and just being so happy to be sleeping with them and snuggling with them and I wanted that more than anything and I would lay in that bed with her she would allow me every once in a while and I would lay in there so still just so still, just not wanting to disturb her in any way at all. She used to joke about it. She'd be like, I hardly even knew you were there. And and sadly, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to hardly be there, but to be there enough where I could think that I was feeling that love, but I knew that was fleeting. So it gives you a very skewed version of what we are as children of God, it really messes with your view of love and acceptance and worth, something I still struggle with today. And there were things that were just very kind of psychological things that, and I've shared these with you too, Mike, where when I was little, if I chewed too loud, I was shamed by a bag put over my head because I ate like a pig, I should look like one. Or if I cried or showed emotion, there was a picture of a basset hound inside of a cabinet. And I was reminded that that's what I looked like. So emotion was not an option either. And I found myself just being cornered 
in this place where I wasn't allowed to be seen or heard or felt as I was. And then I took on this role of protector. And I would just do that at great length to protect my brother and sister. And I took that very seriously. And anybody that knows me today or meets me today is would say that probably still rings true. <laughs> I identify with that pretty, pretty strongly. But interestingly enough, through all of that, God was working. And it amazes me to look back at that. I had such a strong sense of his presence at that young, young age. He gave me such understanding and wisdom and even compassion and empathy for what my mom was going through, what my dad was going through beyond my years that he imparted on me that was able to get me through those times. And yet, of course, it takes it takes this damage toll. And you find yourself striving to be, at least in my case, I strove to be perfect in everything that I did. And in an abusive alcoholic home, it doesn't matter um, if anybody's had experience with that. They know that it doesn't matter what you do, that that will never be good enough. It will never be enough because that's the nature of addiction is it's never enough because God is not first. So I learned about a relationship with God, thank God, um, as a child. So I was able to take that with me, and he imparted a lot of people in my life along the way that loved on me and told me I was special, and I know that was by God's hand. And, you know, the other thing, you know, there was definitely physical abuse as well. It wasn't as prevalent as the psychological and mental abuse, but um, there are things that communicate very strongly to you as a child. And in one of those instances, and interestingly enough, I actually just found journals from when I was a child and I was reading them and I was writing them to God. And it was an instance where my brother was acting out and I thought it was funny. So I joined in very innocent, nothing with simply playing with the sink because we thought it sounded funny. And my father being a salesman, that's very important for him to be on the phone and have it quiet. And of course they zeroed in on me and not my brother. And I got clipped in the back of the head by my dad very hard. It almost knocked me out. Mm -hmm. And then I turned around and my mom slapped me across the face so hard that I started to bleed. And she was angry at me for bleeding. Um, <laughs> And that was the way it was. If um, I wasn't allowed to show that either. So I went upstairs and um, embarrassingly, and I, not a lot of people know this about me, but to, in order to tolerate the abuse, I took to hitting myself. And because um, I needed to know how hard of a hit I could take without crying, because crying would bring on more abuse. And she followed me upstairs and was very upset with me that I was showing emotion and I quickly stuffed it. And the next day, something else had happened. I don't even know. At this point in my life, I didn't even know what I was doing wrong anymore. Just I knew just existing, I must be doing something wrong. And she came up to me and she whispered in my ear and she goes, 
you know, I can do that to you again. So it's like a very clear defining moment in your childhood where you said to yourself, I am not safe here anymore. Mm. And my brother, unfortunately, around the same time, to give context to the situation, he had been sexually molested by, as we found out later, a serial pedophiler and had it taken a great toll on my family. I can only imagine the stress that they were under at that time. However, the complication that it brought to our family was now I really could do no right and my brother could do no wrong. And that has led down a very destructive path for him. And it was very sad. Um, but there were two clear things for, I have a younger sister as well, six years younger than me, that we became very aware of that we, as women in the family, had no value as a woman. And you needed to look good, present yourself in a favorable manner, and our opinions don't matter, our thoughts don't matter, and we are just automatically dumb for being a woman. That's a pretty strong message for a young girl to take forward. And I knew intrinsically because of God, I knew that that wasn't all true, but I had to, to survive. I had to play that part to get through. So I had a very clear course (laughs) when I got to might be 18 years old of where I was going to go and what I was going to do. And, still trying to respect my parents and still trying to honor them in a way that I knew how I didn't have a lot of tools at that time. And um, I remember going to college. I couldn't get out of the house fast enough. (laughs) I got, you know, set up by myself doing my own thing. And um, I had freedom and I did not do the right thing with that freedom at that time. And I, decided I was going to be a bad kid. I finally got to be a bad kid. Now, I don't know why I felt the need to do that, like the things that we do to try to assert ourselves in such a way. But um, I tried the the partying and all that for, I don't know, like a couple of years. And it, it, it wore out really fast for me because um, God had imparted on me that that's how that alcoholism can start. So I didn't want any part of that. But um, it's just all throughout my life, my parents, you know, for a lack of trying or, or whatever it is, it's, it's a very uh, toxic way of thinking. They were both raised that way, too. Women had no value. So I carried that into my early, early adult life. But I had a very specific idea of what I wanted in a mate, and I wasn't going to accept anything less. And so when I found, wasn't even really looking, but when I found my husband that I have today, I, I thought I struck, I, I struck gold. <laughs> mm. I was like, he's amazing. And um, we had a wonderful first few years of our marriage, but this sadness was starting to take hold in me. 
and I was struggling to concentrate kind of like, I want to say around 22, we were married pretty young. We were married at 21 years old and, um, I, we had responsibilities. He had his own business at this time. We were very go-getting kind of people, very, you know, active in everything that we do. And I was so excited because I was part of this, what I thought was this awesome family. They seemed normal. They seemed healthy, adjusted, like they kind of had it together. (laughs) Um, I started having this like sadness when I started not being able to explain why I couldn't process thoughts. And so I started to seek out the help of a counselor who said, you know, it sounds like you just have some minor depression. And I want to say this was around 1995. You sound like you have some minor depression. And I think it would be really a great idea to get you started on maybe like a Prozac, a really low dosage of Prozac. And I had no idea what antidepressants were. I just thought, wow, that would be pretty cool to have some help like that. Um, She was a great counselor. I loved her and was given this antidepressant and things didn't really get better. And I went back to her and she said, oh, you know, I think it actually sounds like ADHD. That was kind of a buzzword at that time. Hmm. Sure, those listening will remember that. That was a big kind of catch-all. And uh, so she said, you know, maybe we could just modify your medicine. And so what ended up happening was through several trials and errors, I started down a road like I, I can't even describe to you what that ended up being. But it was a lot of trial and error of feeling hopeful that maybe this overwhelming sadness and hopelessness and sleeplessness uh, would go away if I could just kind of get on top of it and this pill could possibly help me because we all had so much faith and hope in this medication. And this went on for several years and many different medications. I can't even tell you how many different medications, probably a half a dozen at this point. Um, Ritalin being one of them, which was a terrible, terrible experience for me. I think I stopped it like the next day. I thought my heart was going to beat right out of my chest. And um, just would get some relief and then it would just slide right back in and then I'd get some relief and I'd slide right back in and you start to get this sense of defeat that starts to brew and it starts to grow legs inside of your your mind and your heart because you see this disappointment in the face of that practitioner who wants so much to help you. And, of course, with my background... <laughs> I couldn't handle any disappointment, you know. I didn't want to be rejected. So I did everything I could to make this work, but things just weren't working. And about the time in 1997, I was pregnant, 98, with our first baby. And I felt 
amazing. And of course, I was really scared that those medicines were going to hurt her. So I think I weaned off or went off them completely for her sake, because I was just really scared that that would affect her in some negative way. And pregnancy was a great thing for me. I felt phenomenal. I was super healthy. And the birth went decent. It was challenging, but it was good. And then after she was here, this crushing sadness came back again. And no big deal. You know, we've got a pill for you. And at this time, we had already moved. Now, we had left where we were um, living at that time, which was in um, North Dakota. And they had just suffered a, a huge, massive flood. And we lost everything and decided to move back to Minnesota and kind of start over with our brand new baby and just went back on the med, same thing, just meds work for a while, don't work again. And then you start getting this feeling like your doctor's disappointed in you because you must want to have this if it's not working. Um, try not to flip around too much, but if I was to fast forward that and look back, I cannot tell you how damaging that is to a person who wants nothing more than to feel better. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did not want to take a pill for the rest of my life. I did not want to be identified. That's another thing that once you're labeled with mental illness, people treat you differently, including doctors, and I don't think they mean to. I just think it happens. I think it scares people and they don't know what to do with it. And um, it it was this stigma now that was becoming part of me and I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't know what else to do other than go to the people that were supposed to be there helping me. And they wanted nothing more than to help me. And uh, I... I think I got to the point with my second baby where there again went through the same thing. That pregnancy was not a good pregnancy and got to the end of that pregnancy and I started to get this sensation of the floor is falling out from underneath me. And all throughout this journey, I... You know, I would pray, I would go to my group, and I would, you know, just ask God for relief. I, I just want relief. And the, the hardest thing for me at this point now was the insomnia was so bad that I knew that getting ready to go to bed would result in me laying awake all night. I just watched the clock. Well, let me ask... Um... So for anybody who's listening right now and who's been going through where you were leading up to in your story, yeah. what, would, what would you share with them? That's a really, that's a hard one um, because I, I am medication-free. Um, I would say food is just as much of a healer to medication as medication in and of itself, and there are other options. And to pray about it, um, because what ended up happening is I was hospitalized. I was suicidal. 
And I had, I'd run completely out of options. And um, God is the one that walked me out of every single medication that mm. I was ever on, only to come to find out the medications were actually complicating the issue. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think I would just say that there are so many other ways of healing than just medication. And it sounds like medication was being told, you were being told that that was the answer when it sounds like it was causing the problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it absolutely was. (laughs) Because now I have 10 years, I'm completely medication free. And I mean, I, I go through little bouts of sadness, but it's, I am sleeping, I am healthy. I, yeah, I am completely with a sound mind. And, um, Mm -hmm. and yet on my medical records, it still says that I'm bipolar. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not bipolar by any means. The medications made me crazy. Um, All right. Well, uh, we're going to have to sign off now, but for those of you listening, we will be continuing Shannon's story next week. So please join us next time. Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling, or to have Mike speak at your organization. You can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in Chandler, Arizona at 719-888-5144. Again, visit us at blazinggrace.org. Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144.